You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lori R. King is the award-winning, best-selling author of 17 previous Mary Russell Mysteries, a new series featuring SFPD Cold Case Inspector Raquel Lang, the contemporary Kate Martinelli series, the historical Stuyvesant and Grace Stories, and five acclaimed standalone novels. Her new novel in the Mary Russell series is The Lantern Stance. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Always a pleasure, Rick. I can't tell you how much I love this book, and it you do so many things that are new and interesting with this book that it's kind of like, it's hard to believe, you know, you've done 17 of these books before, and every time it's like you reinvent the world and do something really fun and interesting. How much have you been planning for this particular book? Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think I've been sort of working my way up to this book in some ways for a while. Um, because I'm not a deliberate outliner and planner, mm-hmm. I never quite know what I'm going to do. So it, it, sounds, it sounds very nice to say, oh, I had planned on doing this, but in fact, I just did it. <laughs> um, But I think that from the time that was about seven books in that I started giving Holmes a voice in the stories because always before that he would go off to do part of an investigation and then he'd have to give his information to Russell who tells the stories either in a dialogue or to write her a letter or that kind of thing. But starting with Locked Rooms where she is rediscovering her past and therefore is an unreliable narrator, I had to depend on Holmes to figure things out and to see things for the reader that would might be different from how Russell was seeing them. So starting in that one, which was, I guess, the late 90s, um, <clears throat> I... I I gave him a voice, and I started taking him seriously as a character because up until that point, really, he'd been a supporting actor in in the Russell story. But looking at him as a character and allowing him to develop, I found really interesting because Arthur Conan Doyle finished with Holmes at the eve of the Great War. He continued to write home stories, but the last setting of anyone was the, literally the eve of World War I. And that was because he just couldn't envision this Victorian male detective in the vastly changed world that was England and Europe beginning in the war and then afterwards. He just, there was no place for Holmes in that society. And I, I thought, you know, that's not really fair because Holmes is this brilliant, supple mind 
surely he would have found a place for himself in that changed world. And with that, added to it his addition of an apprentice who challenges him, I thought he would grow as a person. And that's the background of the book. I mean, that's all stuff's going on in my head. Obviously, it doesn't show up in the book. But <clears throat> looking at him over the last few books, he's started reflecting on things, such as his attitude towards women. <laughs> maybe, maybe beginning to suspect that he doesn't understand women quite as well as he thinks he does. <laughs> and <clears throat> with this one, it's, it's very personal because... Russell is discovering that all the things that he thought he knew about his childhood may, as with, own, as with her, um, be, be called into question. So, so this is a story about Holmes's background. Um, there's, the, the way it's put together, it takes a while for the two plot lines to come together because they, they arrive in this village in the south of France, I mean in the, in the south of Paris. Um, his uh, son is missing and there was a threat so he shoots off looking for the son she stays behind to um, fiddle around and she finds this journal she needs to take take apart and decipher and uh, the two stories diverge as Russell and Holmes often do and then come back together and then meanwhile the reader is saying you ought to know this that she's discovered or to Russell Russell you really should know what Holmes has found in the thousand friends so that's, I, always, I always like to add that kind of tension to the reader is, but if they could only get on their cell phones and talk to each other, it would be so much easier. <laughs> you know, the, the reading experience of this book is really joyful. It's really fun to read because of that, because of, well, you know, what you said, the, the background and getting to know Holmes. And one thing I think you did masterfully <clears throat> is that, the events that take unfold in this book uh, key off of events that happened earlier in this series, and, and you do a, a great job of making this a standalone book in that, you know, the, the, those events are referred to as and kind of, you know, in passing, but as set up to the mystery. So you do a great job of getting us, reminding us of what has happened before as part of the mystery to set up what's going to go forward. And yeah, there's really only a few key points you need to know. I mean, Russell's a narrator, so you just step right into her voice, and then she lets you know that she's married to this weird man, Sherlock Holmes, and that Holmes has a son. And that's basically all you need to know um, going forward. You know, um, also, too, uh, one of the things that, that early pops up in this book is something that I'm really interested in is cryptography and books that are written in code. Yeah, you refer to, the, I was super happy to see you refer to the Voynich manuscript. <laughs> Do you have a copy of it? I was so pleased to be able to uh, to stick that in there because I had to, I had to look it up and say, you know, would this have been known? And I said, yes, yes. And uh, and and Voynich Voynich was a man who bought this odd book, and he he kind of snatched it out from underneath the noses of the Vatican. So if the Vatican had managed to buy it, we probably would never have have known of it because 
you know, it's an odd book and they would have stuck it on a shelf saying, huh, I don't know. <laughs> so no, no, I don't have a copy of it. I know they make a, they have a reproduction version that you can get, but um, it's an interesting, I, and, and I mean, do you have an opinion of, is it an actual narrative or is it just somebody's joke? I have just handed Laurier R. King a copy of the Codex Serifianus. It was created by an Italian architect in the 1970s. And if you glance through it, you'll find that it's entirely written in a... It might be a language one never knows. <laughs> there, there, there is no... Uh, by Luigi Serafini. Yeah, Luigi. The Codex Serafinianus. Yes. And with, we did turn to... Uh, with script that looks vaguely like... Yes. It's very, very wiggly script. I... I, I wouldn't I wouldn't begin to know. I mean, this is this is one of the joys of writing fiction, is that my characters can do all kinds of stuff that I can't. Um, we're, we're having a, a a beekeeper's apprentice weekend, um, a, you know, day long mini conference this this coming weekend, and. Uh, of the people there, I, I have somebody coming to teach lessons in lock picking. Oh, wow. And, and I, I don't know how to pick a lock, uh, but my characters do. Um, and th there's another one that we're doing in Bethesda, Maryland, later in the year. And there's a woman who is doing knife throwing demonstration. And uh, my character throws a knife, and I... I, I have a throwing knife, but I don't know how to use it. So, uh, you know, this is one of the pleasures of being a writer of fiction is that I can make characters who do all these clever things. They're always so bright and, you know, and they can they can come up with clever retorts, which, uh, of course, uh, you know, no human being except a professional comic knows how to do that because you always think of it three days later and think, ah, oh, that was such a clever thing. I wish I had said that. Your character can just... You know, you rewrite it, and there she is, her clever retort. But yes, she she can uh, decipher this manuscript that is found in the house of uh, of Sherlock Holmes's son. Now, now, one question is: <clears throat> as I read the book, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to have a deluxe edition with you know the illustrated version? You know, coded version in it. Is that something you've thought of? I mean, Subterranean <laughs> Press would probably love to do that. <laughs> My publisher, in fact, asked me if I wanted to um, to do a... Um, to, to write out a page of the, uh, of the cryptological journal that she found. Um, and I said, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll, I'll let somebody who, who does... Um, you know, clever, clever cryptology. Um, come up with that. So, and now, um, talk about uh, creating these three narratives because one of the things that's really fun about reading this book is that, on one hand, it's pretty apparent that you're going to switch between these three narratives, 
And Natalie makes you think, well, that's a pretty simple setup. But the storytelling within these three narratives and the way they weave and the reader's realizations of what's going on are really finely managed and very complex. Was that accidental? Was that was that the creation of the artist's mind at work? I... I, I I would say that, yes, it was just my own genius, but it was actually... Uh, I spend a lot of time in the rewrite process. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who um, the first draft is a mess, and I never give the first draft to anyone except my editor who needs to see it to give me some money. <laughs> you, you have to prove that there's words on a page, even if they're, they're really terrible words. Um, but the rewrite process is when... I take uh, this lengthy list of ideas and scenes and conversations and so forth and make a novel out of it. And that's the process that if you have, and, and what, what Rick is talking about is that there's, there's the contemporary, I mean, not contemporary from our point of view, but there's the 1925 what's happening in the course of the book with Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes and his son gone missing and the rest of it. But there's also this journal that Russell finds that is somehow related to one of the few things that we know about Sherlock Holmes's past, and that is, he says in the story, The Greek Interpreter, um, that his grandmother was a sister of the artist Vernet. Now, he never says which artist Renee, and there were a dozen of them. Um, but it has to be Horace Renee by dates. And so this journal is somehow related to Horace Renee. And um, because it's in with a box of stuff that are Renee paintings and, a, um, and, and sketchbooks and that kind of thing. So Russell knows that it's related somehow to the Renees. She doesn't know who it is writing it. She doesn't know exactly what's going on. It starts out with no Vernays in sight. And she then has to work her way up to half a dozen chapters before a Vernay appears. And you think, ah, ah, I see where this has been going. Um, and not to give spoilers, but of course, it's not quite that simple. So, um, but anyway, that's, that's, the, that's the sort of secondary plot that twines in with the with the modern 1925 plot, because the journal itself begins in the 1830s. You know, one of the things too this book brought up out to me is the pleasures of reading a book where a deep history is revealed, where something where in the first place this book takes place a hundred years ago but as you were saying it refers to events that took place a hundred years back from where the the characters are in time and so they're discovering stuff about that time we're discovering stuff about their time and that that whole feeling of immersing yourself it's like you get settled kind of into 1925, then you're in 1830, and it, it's just a really wonderful uh, kind of feeling of, you know, journeying, burrowing further back into time. Yeah, yeah, and I had done this in another book. Um, I, I mean, I've done a couple of books that have two different timelines, but 
One a few years ago called uh, The Murder of Mary Russell mm. um, had to do with Mrs. Hudson's past. And so that was when Mrs. Hudson, Clarissa Hudson, was in her 20s and in Australia. Um, there's sections of it from, from that. Um, this goes back even further. And, and much of that journal is set in, in Franco-India. So the French colonies of India was specifically Chandanagore, which is north of Calcutta. And of course, the 1830s um, is before the Raj, because it's still under the British, the majority of India is under the British East India Company, with the exception of these five odd little colonies that um, are the remnants of the, um, the French plans for taking over, <laughs> taking over India, which sort of didn't, didn't go very far other than five small colonies. One of the things, too, I noticed in this book was the, I just thought, my God, she must have done acres of research to make this all real because, I mean, there are, there are thousands of people who know everything there is to know about the history of France, where this takes place, and the history of India and all the other histories of histories. Um, did you find yourself doing the reading before you did the writing to inform the writing? Or did you find yourself writing your way and say, well, I better know what the heck I'm talking about? <laughs> well, I think both. Um, I mean, obviously, you have, to, you have to have done a certain amount of research before writing a book set in a different time and place. Um, but as I find as I go along, I I need to sort of check in on what's going on at that specific time. So if I'm writing, you know, 1838 as opposed to 1830, I need to check and see what actually is going on. But yeah, there's a lot of research in it. And the first draft has a lot of stuff in it that you end up looking at more closely and thinking, wait a minute, do they... They didn't use kerosene lamps in 1830, did they? No, they were they were whale oil. <laughs> so you know, and that's the kind of thing that readers will pounce on you and say, "For God's sake, she doesn't understand that <laughs> the technology of the time." So I I do try and double check, and I'm I'm sure I miss various things, but um, some of them you catch. So that, for example, the um, the fact that the French bread that we think of is the baguette was not the case in 1925. So there there you go. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Rick. No, I'll put it in my oven and cook it. I just made a bunch of baguette though this morning actually. Well there you go. Yeah. I mean they were there were baguettes before you know, before the twenties, but they were not the ubiquitous French symbol. Yeah. So um, one of the things too I noticed is that you you delve into to the art scene and the, again I was thinking boy what what a fun book you can make with you know showing all the prints did you have to uh, go spend a lot of time in museums or did you just look it up online or some of the work in the art world 
that that shows up in the Lantern's Dance is um, is stuff that I had done in previous research because I wrote a book called The Bones of Paris, which is not a Russell and Holmes book, and is set slightly later than this, but it had a lot to do with the art world, and and there's also a couple of sections in previous books. Um, Riviera Gold has sections with uh, the Murphys mm -hmm. and their group that hung out in the south of France. And I had established already that Damien, who is uh, Sherlock Holmes's son, whom he didn't know about until Damien was in his 20s, um, Damien is, has been established as an artist, so I sort of had to take that as his personality here. So he's part of the art community in, in Paris in the 1920s. Um, uh, uh, names are dropped, but I don't think you meet anyone in this book who is you know, specifically connected with the, art, with the art world of the 20s. The next, the next one that I'm working on opens with the wedding scene that's referred to in, in this. And, um, and I'm, I'm now having to choose which artists I should bring in for the wedding. So we'll, we'll, have, we'll have votes as we go along. Who, who, who needs to be there? You know, one of the things that I read that I, as I read this book, I thought, oh my God, what fun, was the idea of the technology of fingerprints, which if I recall whom the, the Doyle homes, there was some notion of that, but not much, if any. And so talk about, like, I mean, you must have just been having a, a hell of a good time, like, developing the history of fingerprinting in forensic, these novels. Forensic techniques, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's the kind of thing you have to check as you go along. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly by the 20s, uh, fingerprints were widely used. Um, it... One of the earlier Conan Doyle stories makes a reference to fingerprinting mm -hmm. or thumbprinting. And it was, it was early. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the techniques of fingerprinting came out of India that had to do with keeping track of who had been paid. So you would take your workers and, um, and fingerprint them as evidence that they'd received their paycheck that week. But it, it soon spread into identification of, you know, pe people who had committed crimes. So the, by, by the end of the century, it was actually being used. And certainly by the 20s, it was actively, I mean, an investigation would include fingerprinting the, the site and the suspects. And yet, you managed to find something that, in all the stupid cop shows and in all the wonderful mysteries I've ever read, you find an aspect of fingerprinting that I've never seen used in a mystery, which is the orientation of the fingerprint is more of a clue than the fingerprint itself. And that, I thought, oh my God, that's just so brilliant. So never Hol seen it done. So Holmesian, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, what... Because it, it, it says how you're holding something, so yes. Yeah, and that, that proves to be a very interesting... You know, um, talk about uh, creating the voice of the uh, 
cryptographic uh, pages, the, the entry, the diary pages, because that's a, a great character. She's just a blast to read, and especially going back between her and Holmes and, and Russell. Yeah. That, that must have been fun. Did you write these pages in the order we read them roughly? Um, I, some of them, I suppose. I think some of them... I knew roughly what I wanted to do, and um, but I, I wasn't sure how many, because the idea is, the book is built around the idea of a, what was called an image lantern, is now known as a zoetrope. Right. Where oh. you take a strip of paper, and it has a series of drawings that shift, so that they, they move from one position into a completely different position, and then slowly move back to that other position, so that it, they, they go... And when you put them into the device and whiz it around so you can see glimpses of it, it becomes a, a seamless circle of motion, the early animation. So most of these have, you know, between 10 and 15 of the individual drawings. And this, the Lantern's Dance is built around, I think it's 12. So that each of the images in this journal that Russell finds is, in effect, the first image in a zoetrope. When you first meet the author of this journal, she's four years old, and she sees an image that remains with her of her mother disappearing from sight, her weeping mother, and as this, this child is being taken away from her. And that's where the images begin in this cycle. So um, I, <clears throat> I knew that I needed to start there, and I knew roughly where I wanted to end. And I had to divide up this, it's a, it's a young woman, her name is Lakshmi, you find eventually. Um, I wanted to divide up Lakshmi's life into you know, 12 sections, each of which was key to understanding who she was and how she relates to you know, the Vernet family. And and so I, I I would write in one and then another, and then I had to decide how many steps in between. So quite often my, you know, chapter eight would say um, image question mark. <laughs> and, and I would then decide. But yeah, yeah, I and I wanted to make the the voice that she speaks in very different from Russell's because both are in first person, which can be a little confusing when you're reading if they're not instantly distinguishable. They are instantly distinguishable. It's really a joy to go back and forth between them. I I was I was amused the other day. I made a video for uh, for Facebook where I read the first chapter uh, in which is Russell when they get to the house. She's arguing with Holmes. They get to the house. She goes to ring the doorbell and hears the sound of a shotgun being clicked into place behind her. So that's your first chapter. It, this is this is as many spoilers as you get here. Um, and then I skipped on to the first chapter of the journal where Lakshmi is writing about um, how she is taken from her mother at the age of four. And... I found as I was reading that there was an instant shift in my voice from Russell's, I mean, my own, it's my own natural 
voice is, is what I read Russell in. But my voice when I started reading this journal entry went higher and, and slightly stilted. And it was not something I deliberately planned. I just realized it had to be different somehow, and that's the voice I ended up with. So yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's quite the, uh, a pleasure. And you know, the other thing that I thought was that, and, and we referred to this earlier, Doyle only gave us like three crumbs, literally, of, of <laughs> Holmes's past. Yeah, yeah. And no backstory in that character. No backstory in that character which leaves you free to create one. And I think you do a, a brilliant job of doing so. And it must have been, you know, with a fair amount of apprehension in, in terms of, <laughs> you know, I, I, I interviewed uh, David Graham many years ago about a book he, he wrote. And one of the subjects he had investigated for New, The New Yorker was, you know, the Sherlock Holmes world, which... <laughs> Which is, is complicated. Yeah, complicated, yeah. populated, and highly opinionated. Yes. So, so talk about uh, venturing to create, you know, a, a, a much more richly and beautifully detailed background. Well, you know, the Sherlockian world and I have a history, as you might imagine. Because I, I started the Russell books before there was really an internet, mm -hmm. you know, it was pub the first one was published in 1994. Um, I lived in the wilds of Watsonville, and our our modem those early years consisted of laying your phone receiver down on a box and letting it warble. Remember that? <laughs> so I was not on the internet. I was completely oblivious to the fact that there was there was a world of Sherlockian fandom out there. I, I kind of hesitate to use the word fandom because it doesn't seem quite enough. But, you know, of, of friends of Sherlock out there, shall we say. And when I first published The Beekeeper's Apprentice, they were very dubious about the whole exercise. And I think they... I think they anticipated that these were going to be romances because you have a young woman and you know she impresses the big detective and you know very Mary Sue-ish um, and I it wasn't until two or three books went by that a I realized that I that flame wars were erupting every time I published a Russell book and I, as I said, I was completely oblivious to it. I yeah, no no connection. But I think after that, um, people began to realize that I I wasn't doing um, Sherlockian romance. I wasn't even doing Sherlockian erotica, which is its own little world. But I had instead this considerable respect both for the character of Sherlock Holmes and for Arthur Conan Doyle. And I think it began to become clear to people that I was doing something respectful and serious with the character. And, um, and it, it, it must have spread within the Sherlockian world because a few years later they invited me to give the, <clears throat> the annual lecture at the Baker Street Irregulars uh, weekend. And two years later, they made me a BSI. So I am an official Baker Street Irregular. 
So, wow. But yeah, I think you have to. You certainly you have to know the stories very well <clears throat> before you start messing around with somebody else's character. And you have to make sure that your version of the character fits seamlessly with the one that everybody knows. You, you know, you got. 56 short stories and four novels. And although there's not much backstory, you certainly feel that you, you know the man intimately um, when, you've, when you've read those stories. So I, I think that the fact that I, I, I do know him, I have done my research, I do appreciate the stories, and I have both respect and pleasure in the Conan Doyle canon um, has has become has become obvious. So that when I start messing around with him and interpreting things, I don't get too much pushback. Um, a number of years ago, I I when I was setting up the timeline, the chronology of the Russell stories. One of the questions was, you know, how old was he? When did the story start? And there's various firm dates in the Conan Doyle canon, but not a lot. And I went back in some that, for example, there's a couple stories that are set before, um, portions of them are set before he and um, Watson meet and take, take to living together in Baker Street. And I looked at the chronology of those stories and worked out a plausible but alternative um, timeline for Holmes's life that makes him a few years younger than the generally accepted dates are. But because I did so with footnotes, you know, basically saying if we look at this and say this is this number of years and that happened then, um, I, I think they are very willing to accept the fact that I am playing the game with the best of them. And, and, and I'm hoping that the same way will go with this one, that I make interpretations of uh, the, the great detective's backstory that have nothing to do or very little to do with Conan Doyle. So. I thought they were really brilliant and really enjoyable. Yeah, but you're not a Baker Street irregular, right? Come on. No. <laughs> no, no, I am not. <clears throat> However, I, I was also impressed, I thought, too, with you know, there's a a theme in here of of uh, the veteran that deals with the veterans of World War One, and it's really interesting to read, you know, the books set in this time, where you know it's called shell shock, and and where the knowledge of PTSD was there was none. And so it's fascinating to read somebody who is well-informed about PTSD, but writing about the times before it was really well understood. So you can inform your characters with observations <clears throat> as a writer that would not have been available to the people of the time, but to to better recreate the people of that time. And that's a fascinating uh, process. I I. It's, I think you'd be surprised at how much of what we know about PTSD and how we treat PTSD was actually established by the 20s. 
Mm. Um, uh, obviously a very different vocabulary. But the early psychiatrists who worked with men who came out of the trenches unable to walk because they were shaking so hard, um, who woke with screams at night, um, who who didn't know how to to relate to other human beings. Um, they they tackled it in a way that is very familiar to those who look at PTSD now. Obviously, you know, a hundred years we've developed our techniques considerably. One could hope, but um, but yeah, a lot of what Damien has been through and what is referred to in the place that they go to in the south of France, for example. Um, that's just straight out of the 20s rather than something that I laid on to um, it with my, my century later knowledge. There's a quote in here too that I just totally love because it's totally true, but it, it is so <clears throat> part and parcel of this book. The bonds between any father and son were inherently problematical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hardly an original thought, but yeah, it's um, you know, I think that one of the one of the things between a parent and child, and particularly a parent and child of the same sex, is that at a certain point there has to be a degree of of competition. Um, to to define yourself as a daughter or as a son and turn into you know a woman or a man who is freestanding from your parents you have to you have to lock horns at some point and um and and that's so yes i would uh, just say you have a lot of fun with damien yeah i like i like the character of damien i think that he's um at at one point he's sort of maddening and at another point you can really understand where he's coming from and um and i i liked writing his relationship with his child he has a a little girl and i i enjoyed writing that um because not you know not all men are given the um are credited in fiction with being involved with their kids, especially young kids. And I think that most of the, most of the fathers I know are, are very involved with small children. <clears throat> At one point, uh, we hear, the last thing I'd want is to get cornered at a party by some distant cousin wanting to know how I was a Vermeer, forcing me to either lie or, or to admit that my father was Sherlock Holmes, who, no, actually wasn't made up by that writer, Doyle. Can you imagine? Well, I suppose you can. <laughs> and so you will. There's also another a part later on where Holmes is explained to somebody like, about being injected with, with monkey juice or something. It's really uh, fun. You have a lot of uh, good comedic fun and also kind of metafictional fun playing with the idea of Holmes as being real. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that I think the metafictional aspects of of Mary Russell and the stories were there from the very beginning, because she, you know, she meets this man that she sort of half suspects is fictional, and she stumbles across him on the Sussex Downs and realizes that no, no, he actually is a person on the Sussex Downs keeping bees, and there's various points in, I won't say all the books, but quite a few of the books where he has to hide his name because otherwise people, in, you know, are taken aback like, funny, it's the same as that detective bloke. <laughs> Don't you find that inconvenient? <laughs> and where, where Russell says that occasionally she begins to feel slightly unreal herself <laughs> by contagion. So, yeah, I I enjoy putting those things in there and the the little references like that one to um to the professor that decides that he, that the way to rejuvenate himself is to inject monkey <laughs> monkey glands. <laughs> you know, it's it's a sort of thing that doesn't really enter into this story and most people will just sort of you know, read past it. But for those who know the Sherlock Holmes canon, it's sort of like a little nudge in the ribs of, yeah, remember that one? <laughs> the, the Easter egg progress process of uh, dropping little tidbits in books. Well, it, it's, a, it's a way to make books really fun for the readers. And that's, you know, the reading experience of this book is just filled with all sorts of fun at every level. On one hand, to see the development of Holmes and Russell and their relationship in the story, and as Russell gets to know Holmes better and Holmes gets to know himself better, that's just really just a wonderful, you know, that's great in any book from, you know, any any writer who manages that kind of interaction. That's really fun to read. But then to have all these kind of like little, um, you know, Phillips of icing on, it's the icing on the cake, you know, the frills. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am always, um, always pleased when I am told that one of my books is one that people reread. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's been interesting watching the discussion because with modern publishing, you know, they're supposed to have a book release on the day of publication. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a lot of bookstores ship them early. A lot of you know, and a lot of people have read the advanced reading copy and so forth and so on. But to have the number of people say that you know they'd they'd finished it in four hours and now they were going back to read it again, or they they read it a month ago and they were looking forward to reading it as an audio book, and you know it's really lovely to think that people find enough in a novel to to want to reread it and revisit the characters and linger over some of the some of the scenes uh, well although the word has been used to death I, I, and, and polluted by by men wearing tights uh, the 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 uh, word universe really applies to this you, the, the Mary Russell universe is real and it's real for people because you're as you alluded to earlier you're having a beekeepers weekend and also this book is dedicated to bookshop Santa Cruz where you had an event uh, last night to release the book 
So you know it's on uh, it's on Friday night. Oh, it's on Friday. Yeah. Night. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. Yay! Yeah. So, so the, people can listen to this on their way to the event. Yeah. Friday night. Uh, Friday night at bookshop and Saturday all day at the Museum of Art and History. Wow. It's it's <laughs> twenty four hours of Mary Russell has taken over Santa Cruz. Uh, that that is uh, that's a grueling schedule, but uh, it's interesting how. Your readers have taken this to heart to make it not just a part, you know, of their reading lives, but to make it a part of their living lives. And that that's a, a really profound accomplishment on your part as a writer. I mean, you're up there with, uh, uh, you know, the creators of Batman and Superman. Oh, well, huh? yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, yes, I am, I am amused at the community that has come into existence, the Russell and Holmes community that has come. And there's a very active uh, Facebook group called The Beekeeper's Apprentices. Um, and whenever there's a crime conference, we always get together and have either a dinner or some kind of meetup. Um, because, you know, people, people who have similar taste in books often have a lot in common other than that. And it's, it's lovely to feel that I have brought people together in friendship over the years. Um, I mean, there's also, <laughs> there's also people who, <clears throat> who follow Russell's example and do things like going off to Oxford to study theology. And you think, really? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you realize that these that I lie for a living, and <laughs> I wouldn't really recommend that you make a future based on a theological degree. <laughs> you know, you could sell shoes, I suppose, but um, or write books. Yeah, yes, I I write books based on my own theology degree, but um, yeah, it's it's interesting how alive Russell has become in in people's experiences and lives. You know, too, um, the idea of dedicating this to Bookshop Santa Cruz, I mean, bookstores play an important part in the lives of readers. And I think that your dedication to Bookshop Santa Cruz, which is kind of a bit, uh, even though this is a small town and somewhat irrelevant in in, in the world scheme, um, Bookshop Santa Cruz is a big player in the bookstore world. And really in the identity of Santa Cruz itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I sent out a letter to people who are coming to Santa Cruz this weekend to suggest things that they should do and, you know, go see the monarch butterflies and walk out to the end of the wharf and see the sea lions. But also pop into bookshop, wander around, and then go back to their toilet section and look at their display of, um, you know, of the history of Bookshop Santa Cruz. And, you know, the book tent sign is there. And Boy, bookshop I remember when I came here, moved here, it was book tent Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. So it was in the early 90s, yeah. Yeah, and it has, since it was founded, it has become central to, uh, to the Santa Cruz identity. And I've been doing events with them since the 90s. Um, and and always, always love being welcomed. You know, there's one thing that your, back to the book, one thing that book structure really allows you to do is to, uh, you create, there are some 
absolutely magnificent cliffhangers where a chapter ends and you just go, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you, you get knocked upside the head and, and then, you know, you're somewhere with, with another character who, and that's calling back to a previous cliffhanger. It, talk about that kind of, uh, you know, it's like you're an Indian fakir climbing the rope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of the... Part of the structure of writing a novel, I, I, I know that there are people, there are writers out there who are experimenting with novels that don't have chapter breaks. And I don't, I don't know how you would make that a positive thing because I think the structure of, especially on the page, I mean, is different. When, when you're listening to an audiobook, you have to have a pause and then chapter two. Um, and so that, that helps to sort of turn the page in the mind. But if you don't have that, how do you play with cliffhangers? And how do you play with um, scene shifting? Because that's, that's what, I mean, the, the cliffhanger is where you, you kind of leave someone in one situation and then go talk to another person for a while which makes you crazy at first and you want to page on and go back to where that cliffhanger is waiting for you, but at the same time you don't want to miss anything. So it's a way of playing with, um, with tension and pacing and, um, and the, the way that you weave the characters together. So yes, I, I'm, I'm sorry to, um, to increase your blood pressure with my cliffhangers, Rick, but um, I, it's part of my job. I, and it's a job well done. Talk about um, the idea of frames, which is how you, uh, I guess, uh, uh, as it were, frame the uh, translated uh, diary parts. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. Each of her, <clears throat> each of her chapters, Lakshmi's chapters, is yes, it is a an image in a zoetrope of her life. But it's also an image in itself. And um, so she often sees them as a, as a picture of what she's looking at, but has a frame around it. So that the first one is when her mother is fading, but the frame that the picture is surrounded by is the window of the carriage that she's being taken away in. Um, so each of them has that that sort of frame that also plays on the whole artistic theme that runs through the book because um, most paintings certainly in the 19th and 20th century most paintings had some kind of a frame around them that was what you did to separate it from the wall <laughs> and and so it 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 enables me to continually touch on this idea of of art and the artistic mentality and what it is to capture um, a scene as a still uh, on canvas or in an image of some kind. One of the more pleasurable uh, aspects of <clears throat> the action that unfolds in this book uh, is also found often in Monty Python, and it's a reversal of that, which is, in your case, we have women dressing as men and passing as men because it's 
men can move much more freely and conveniently in the time uh, of Holmes Russell and also in earlier times. Talk about that, you know, discovering that whole culture. And, you know, that has come to a head now where it's a, a political thing. Yeah, I, this is one of those areas that <clears throat> when you when you get into the research of a book, you, you really, really want to make use of it more than you can. And, um, and I... The sections of the book that have this young woman in, in India and elsewhere in the early 19th century, um, women just simply could not move with any freedom at that, that time. And even Russell in the 1920s finds that dressing in male, quote male, unquote, clothing um, allows her to do a lot of things that she couldn't if she were in a frock. Um, when you start looking at, <clears throat> you know, if you, if you Google, um, what, what would it be? Women dressed as men throughout history or something, something similar to that. You come across all these characters that you think, I, I want to be that person. <laughs> and I, there are mentions of some of them in the book. Um, the one, famous I think, uh, Wells Fargo gal. Yeah, I mean, there's our local um, Mountain Charlie, yeah. who was a, a guy who ran a lot of the stagecoaches in and out of the Santa Cruz Mountains, um, was discovered to be biologically a woman when he died. Now, in Russell's age, the 1920s, it would have been assumed that these were women dressed as men. And the transvestite was about as close to um, defining that role as, as they would get. Now we realize that these are, you know, women who dress as men may actually be men in any, everything except their external fittings. And I mean, gender identity is a recent, um, a recent concept, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm quite sure, looking at various of these women dressed as men in history, um, that a lot of them were, as far as they were concerned, they were males, um, just that they happened to have been born with the wrong parts. You know, and I think you do a great job uh, of describing that and having you think that, the reader think that and explore that concept without hitting the reader over the political head. Yeah. And, well, I think, and I think that's really wonderful. I mean, isn't it part of the job of writing novels to ask readers to step back and think about things that they had always, you know, just, just sort of accepted um, I mean, we're we're sort of required to challenge assumptions in various ways, and I think not all of them you need to be hit over the head with. And with that, I mean, this business of gender identity or transvestitism for convenience, um, th th that question is one that that lightly touches on the story, so therefore it's not really dwelt on 
but it's a it's a real consideration for you know for the modern reader or for even people in their twenties. The new book by Lori R. King is The Lantern's Dance. Thank you for joining me, Lori. My pleasure as always, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.